Republican Eric Schmidt has been in the headlines a lot as Missouri's attorney general. Whether it's suing China over the coronavirus or intervening to get the charges dropped against Mark and Patricia McCloskey. Schmidt is one of three statewide office holders appointed to their posts by Governor Mike Parson. He's now seeking a full term as attorney general. The Republican joins us next on Politically Speaking to talk about those attention-grabbing cases and his efforts to fight violent crime in the state. You can find an episode with his Democratic opponent, Rich Finneran, at our website. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. Well, we want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Rachel Lippman. Joining me today is my co-host, Jason Rosenbaum. And our guest today is the Attorney General of the State of Missouri, Eric Schmidt. Mr. Schmidt is seeking a full term for the Office of Attorney General. His Democratic opponent, Rich Finneran, was on Politically Speaking last month. Um, we are in a conference room of his uh, one of his campaign people's uh, uh, businesses, and uh, we are all in masks. So if it sounds a little bit muffled, that is why we are complying with local orders. And Jason and I were talking. We think this may set a record for appearances on political. I'm glad you brought this up. I was prepared for this question because I do believe that's true. Is this is seven lucky seven? It is lucky okay. seven. And I was the first. You were the first. Yeah. Jason looks embarrassed by that. He's like, they're long blinks. I'm not sure what that means. Well, I mean. It was you were tied with your former Truman State University classmate Scott Sifton, but right. he has not been on this year, so he is now like two shows behind you, which I'm sure is really embarrassing for him. I'm happy to have him catch up. It's fine with me, I, Scott. I, I, I'm sure that he will. He is going to leave Missouri politics because of that. Or they'll figure out a reason to to get him on the podcast. That's right. Anyways, Mr. Attorney General, you were one of a number of statewide officials who were appointed to their offices by the governor. What what have you done in that period of time since you were elevated to the office that you would point to to say you've earned a full term? Well, I think, um, you know, upon the appointment to the attorney general, it's it's obviously a, a big honor as, as somebody who is the first lawyer in my family, actually the first person to go to college right out of high school in my family to be, you know, to, to go to law school and be a practicing lawyer and then end up as the attorney general for, you know, six million of my fellow citizens is a great honor. So I take all of this with a lot of humility, and I think that's important. Um, but early on, um, <clears throat> certainly being a native of the St. Louis area, uh, violent crime was something that um, I wanted to uh, try to address as attorney general and be part of the solution. And so I met from the outset with um, Jeff Jensen, who's the U.S. attorney, before I was even sworn in, met with Jeff Jensen, the U.S. attorney, and said, how can we work together? And, um, you know, the Safer Streets uh, initiative was born from that. It was really the first big announcement um, as attorney general, which was unprecedented and still is unprecedented in the country. We have lawyers from our office who've been cross-designated as assistant U.S. attorneys to prosecute violent crime in, in federal court. And so we're also doing that on the western side of the state. There's been over 300 charges to date from that partnership. And I think that's an example of what can happen when, when people work together. 
that's one thing. The other one I'd point to probably is the Safe Kid Initiative, where um, we went around the state in 2019 and did an, uh, a vast inventory in every county of the state to figure out how many untested sexual assault kits were there out there. And we had a grant to do it. And, um, you know, there were over 6,000. And um, that's just unacceptable. So the th three sort of phases of that is the inventory, which was an exhaustive um, um, inventory that was done, but there were recommendations made to the legislature that actually moved on this year. I think Senator Koenig had that bill. Um, some of those make, make some of those recommendations law. Also to have a tracking system where victims and law enforcement can know where those kits are at at all times. And then ultimately the testing phase. And so we've moved um, well over 1,300 of those kits with the money that we had. We're applying for more money to continue that testing. And as those come in, we'll work with local law enforcement and prosecutors uh, to get justice for victims. And as an example of that, we were in Southwest Missouri, I think last month, we sent you know um, 51 kits came back uh, and there were over a dozen hits on the CODIS system, meaning there's somebody in that system that, that we might be able to move forward with as, uh, again, get justice for the, for the victims. So again, I think fighting for victims, victims trying to make our community safer has been something we've spent a lot of time on and um, I'm proud of the work we've done. So it sounds like that seemed, that would be what you consider the fundamental role of the Attorney General's office. Is that accurate, that it's sort of a you know more crime-fighting uh, victims advocate role, or what would you say is sort of the role of the Attorney General's office? Well, it's a, it is a big office in the sense that um, you have a number of different roles that you play. Um, you're leading an office of almost 400 people, almost 200 lawyers, um, and you want to establish a culture where people work hard and understand that work we do is really, really important. And I'm proud of the team that we have um, in the AG's office, but you're, all, you're the lawyers for the state. So when uh, you know you have a client agency or the state suit or there's a, a law that's challenged, you represent the state. We, so we have a civil side of the office, and then we have a criminal side where we handle all the criminal appeals from across the state. But I think there are things that you can do uh, through your own you know initiative, which are a couple of things that I've highlighted. That um, again, I think especially in the times we're in right now, where we're seeing violent crime on the rise, I think it's important to have a state attorney general that, that works with folks to try to, you know, uh, make sure that people feel safe. What is your threshold for getting the state of Missouri involved in a lawsuit? You said there is the civil side where, you know, you're, you're defending an office or, you know, advocating for the state of Missouri. What is the, the point at which you say, you know what, I need to get in on a lawsuit or need to sort of actively take a role in yes. doing that? It's a good question. So we have, um, you know, obviously regular meetings with our team to, to evaluate when those things come up. Some of it is a defensive posture, right? Like the, the state is sued. Um, the expression of the will of the people is is challenged and um, you defend the constitutionality of the statutes. But as far as the things that you can move forward on, I mean, a good example that we're involved in um, a big opioid lawsuit, right? And there are a number of states, it's a very bipartisan effort where we work with other state attorneys general uh, in whether or not our case is gonna go to trial in the city of St. Louis or there's gonna be some big global settlement. That's you know an example of a decision you make. Do we wanna join that? Do we not wanna join that? We joined um, or brought suit in one of the largest antitrust um, lawsuits in, in this nation's history as it relates to generic drug price fixing. And so those are the things that as you have discussions with other attorneys general, a lot of times these issues come up and then as a team you decide, hey, is this something we wanna be a part of? So it's a, it's a very collaborative process. Now I watch a lot of TV and I think a big part of your ads and your, your paid messaging is that you are opposed to the so-called defund the police movement. I want to throw this question a little on its head. St. Louis and St. Louis County raised their sales taxes in order to provide more money for police, yet 
both of those cities are still experiencing a lot of crime. Isn't that kind of a sign that throwing more money at police is not necessarily the only thing you need to do to bring crime rates down? Well, I wouldn't suggest that the only thing to do is to make sure our law enforcement is well-funded. There's a lot of underlying issues, and some of the things that I had a chance to work on in the legislature, like making sure people have a good education and access to a good education no matter what zip code they're in, that has a lot to do. Those are, those are longer-term issues that I think thoughtful people can sit down on a table, across the table from one another and agree on. But there's no question that I would argue we need more funding for police right now. We need more boots on the ground. It's one of the reasons why I fought for, and um, we had a big press conference last year and a bill signing last week for lifting the residency requirement for the city of St. Louis um, as far as the, you know, to be a police officer there. We need more boots on the ground. And that also, by the way, uh, includes community policing. But we got to make sure that the, that the law enforcement officers are there, they have body cams, that they're protected. Um, and, you know, in fact, some of the, I remember Prop P advertising was to make sure you have two two law enforcement officers in the vehicle at the same time. There's a lot of things we can do, but the idea that you would defund and dismantle uh, is just a really destructive thing right now. And so um, we're gonna fight tooth and nail against that and make sure the law enforcement knows that they have support. Now, if I was talking to a mayor in North St. Louis County and I asked them, did you see Eric Schmidt's ad about being against defunding the police? I could imagine them saying, well, he was the main person behind Senate Bill 5, which meant that there was a lower percentage of revenue from fines and fees that could go into our budget, which may lead to less money for their police departments. What would you say to some of those people who say, you let it defund the police movement through Senate Bill 5? First of all, that would be a ridiculous assertion to make. Um, secondly, those are general revenue dollars. Um, those local authorities still have the decision-making power to decide how much money they want to go towards law enforcement. I would argue they need more going to towards law enforcement. The crux of Senate Bill 5 was, a lot of these bureaucrats and these municipalities in North St. Louis County and beyond, not just in North St. Louis County, other parts of St. Louis County and across the state, were using their municipal courts as revenue-generating operations and really, honestly, um, um, perpetuating, creating cycles of poverty, perpetuating cycles of poverty. And most people interact with the court system through our municipal courts. They don't, most people um, don't, they're not in the Supreme Court of the state of Missouri on some issue. They, you know, have a traffic ticket or they have a loud muffler or something like that. And, and so when you see that kind of abuse, it's perfectly appropriate for us to try to correct that. Um, but, you know, advocating for more money for police budgets is something that, that I'm doing. I've been saying for a long time. But having a city manager sit there and say, hey, we need more money in the general fund next year. So we're going to set up a speed trap is very different. You've, speak, you've spoken a lot on this podcast and, you know, done several, you know, media pops on Operation Safer Streets that, you know, cross-pollination into the U.S. Attorney's Office. And your press release touts that a lot of them are felon in possession cases. Would it make more sense to stiffen the penalty at the state level and let then local officials handle that prosecution? Or why is it important to get some of those felon in possession cases at the federal level? Well, I think because... Um you know, there's a, there is a law on the books right now um, at the federal level that's pretty stiff. And I think getting some of those dangerous folks off the streets is an important part of the Safer Streets Initiative. There's stiffer sentences also, um, which, you know, come with that. But, there, but look, the jurisdiction is somewhat limited. I mean, you can't handle homicides, for example, typically. Now, some of the cases we've, we've dealt with in the uh, Safer Streets Initiatives have been carjackings and including carjackings resulting in death. But typically, there has to be a nexus there between the federal crime 
and you know the loss of life. There's so really no federal statute for homicide. Correct. So that's usually a state charge. So, um, but yeah, I think that's a big part of it is making sure you know get some of the most dangerous elements uh, in these communities who are terrorizing neighborhoods off the streets. And that's a big part of the Safer Streets Initiative. So handle it at the federal level because there's just more resources there? Or again, why not just go to the state and say, hey, let's make this a Class C felony instead of a Class D felony and, and, and boost the penalties at that level? Well, um, in my role right now as Attorney General, right, is where can I be most effective in helping? And so we know that we've got this partnership. We know that we can actually prosecute at the federal level, and that's what we're doing. And so we're going to continue to do that as long as that partnership is viable, because I do think it's important that, again, it's not the only thing to do, but it is a very important thing to do um, to make sure that in that commitment in those communities that you are going to take on violent crime and you're going to be successful for witnesses to come forward. There's a whole bunch of reasons, but for witnesses to come forward, they got to know um, that you've got prosecutors lined up that when they charge this case, they're actually going to move forward and they get, can get convictions. And uh, that's why we're really proud of this partnership with the the uh, federal prosecutor. If you are able to win a full term in office, would you push to have the state's uh, witness funds have money put into those? Absolutely. I think witness protections, uh, you know, and, and um, I fully support what, what uh, the legislature was doing and I think that was a bipartisan push. Um, the mayor of Kansas City, I know, was supportive of it. The mayor of St. Louis was supportive of it. Um, the Republican legislature, yeah, I think that's an important thing to do. Can you talk about why you were in support of concurrent jurisdiction and allowing your office to intervene in St. Louis homicide cases? I think if you look at um, the totality of the circumstances here, you've got over 200 um, murders in the city of St. Louis. I mean, these are really historic numbers. Um, violent crime is certainly on the rise and spiking in the city of St. Louis. You, you, um, you add that to the fact that, which has been well documented, this is not just me saying this, a high degree of turnover, well over 100% turnover in the circuit attorney's office. Uh, the circuit attorney's office bringing 40% fewer charges even though violent crime is on the rise. Um, um, we want to be helpful and um, I think there is an issue of, of not having capacity in that office. Going from about 70 prosecutors to between 20 and 30 prosecuting cases is a real challenge. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I mentioned, I met with Jeff Jensen um, before I was sworn in. I met with Kim Gardner before I was sworn in and offered that, um, you know, to try to try to work together. And there wasn't much of a response on her end. But the concurrent jurisdiction pieces are, um, you know, us saying we're, we're still willing to help because um, to me, um, although I'm, you know, things get blown up um, when it comes to public safety, there shouldn't be any politics. Doesn't state law already allow a prosecutor though, to a local prosecutor or circuit attorney to come in and say, hey, we need some help with this, we can't handle this? Yeah, so and that happens all the time. And, um, and that's sort of the point. It happens all the time in a lot of places in Missouri. And we're involved, you know, prosecutors say, hey, we've got a triple homicide. Uh, you know, maybe we don't have the expertise for this. Would you guys come in and help? And we do it all the time, but there's no, none of that is happening right now in the city of St. Louis. There is no, and I think they need help and we're willing to help. And so the concurrent jurisdiction piece was to say, hey, look, after a certain period of time, if you haven't charged it, um, we have another look and um, be able to, again, 
try to address um, the backlog of homicides in the city. In order to be able to charge a homicide case, the police have to solve it, bring it to the circuit attorney's office, and the homicide clearance rate in the city is notoriously low. It hovers around like 25, 30 percent usually. Is there something that the attorney general's office can do to support that side of it so there are more charges and are more cases for the circuit attorney to try? Yeah, we don't really have a role in that. Um, you probably have to have a change of statute. But um, I think having more police officers, again, getting back to our previous discussion, would be an important thing. Um, having more community policing, more boots on the ground, more homicide detectives, all that would be good. But that takes funding. And you've got, you know, quite frankly, the, the city Democrat club saying, you know, endorsing the idea of defunding the police. So I think there is a bit of a a disconnect there. Um, I would be supportive of more funding for police to, to take on those issues. But the truth is, um, you know, the circuit attorney is, is, is sending back police officers when they're bringing, you know, cases to her office. So um, that's part of it, too. So that, I don't think that tells the full story, I guess, is my point. Now, the State Prosecutors Association came out heavily against concurrent jurisdiction because they saw it as uh, basically an abdication of local control and they felt like if it was St. Louis was first, the rest of the state could be next where the attorney general's office could intervene in decision making. And it obviously didn't pass. Look, yeah, so I is, want you to talk like, about yeah, this. this is like an old, um, you know, we have historical amnesia about a lot of things. I mean, this is like a, uh, this is a battle that goes back to like Jay Nixon and Claire McCaskill. And there's just like, there's a whole- She whole actually talked about it in her book. And I think that uh, both her and Bob McCullough were very much opposed to this idea. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, it go, yeah. And it's, um, it's been, it, I'm sure it's part of even going further back than that. Um, you know, my response to that would be, look, I respect the work that the local prosecutors do in their own jurisdiction. I just think we're dealing with a very um, unique set of circumstances right now in the city of St. Louis with you know, the loss of a lot of talented people in that office going from 70 lawyers to 20 or 30, um, the charges being down, that there, there is a way for us to be helpful, and we just wanted to be a part of the solution. And we'll be right back with Attorney General Eric Schmidt. And we're back on Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Rachel Lipman, with my co-host, Jason Rosenbaum, and our guest today, the Attorney General, Eric Schmidt. And homicides in the city, as you've mentioned, are at near record highs this year. What does that say about the impact of safer streets on violent crime in the city? Well, we're doing everything we can. I think we're adding capacity that wasn't there before. So the, you know, the charges that you see are, are may have not happened and certainly happening quicker than what would have happened before, again, to get some you know, dangerous folks off the streets. And so, um, again, it's a very unique partnership. It is one that hasn't really been done anywhere else. And I think we're adding bandwidth with our federal partners to prosecute violent crime. So we're happy with that effort. Look, there's always more work to do. There's no question about it, which is, again, why we were interested in helping out with the concurrent jurisdiction. I think there are some homicides that ultimately we could be a part of the of prosecuting. In fact, a case that I prosecuted uh, myself in the city of St. Louis in January was um, a conflict case that came from the city from years before. So there is a precedent for that happening. It's just the circuit attorney really hasn't been interested in that. And conflict cases are one where an attorney can't handle it because connection to the case. Prior. Yeah, so for example, she, she hired someone who was a public defender, and that was a case that, you know, as it relates to the, the Mulder case that I prosecuted, that was a conflict because someone in her office was involved, directly involved with that. Um, but yeah, you have conflict cases all the time in rural Missouri. Somebody, 
you know, the prosecutor has a relationship with somebody in that county or the, the sheriff or the judge or something, and then they ask us to come in. So that's something, and we take that very seriously. We have a special prosecution team that goes around the state and is very, very successful. These are very seasoned prosecutors. Um, we take that, you know, um, aspect of our office very seriously and want to be helpful wherever we can. Another point at which you and the circuit attorney's office are in conflict is over how to handle potential wrongful convictions. She wants the prosecutor, local prosecutors, to be able to kind of bring these cases, drop the charges. You're advocating to say there's a proper way to do it. How should those cases be handled where the prosecutor comes and says, look, you know what? Our office handled this case poorly a number of years ago and we want to make it right. Well, there is a process um, for um, for those who've been convicted to bring that new evidence or, you know, alleged new evidence forward through a habeas petition. And that's been the law of the state of Missouri for hundreds of years. What's unique here is the circuit attorney um, is, is trying to say, well, that we don't want to do that anymore. I should be able to come in and get a new trial and get the case dismissed. And that is just not... Um, ever been established or allowed under Missouri case law. And so the judge in the city, uh, Judge Hogan, ordered us into the case. Um, she thought there was something wrong with what was happening and ordered us into the case. We briefed the case as, as again, lawyers for the state. Um, uh, the trial court agreed. It went to the appellate court in the Eastern District here. The, the, the appellate court agreed, and now that case is pending before the Supreme Court. It's been argued. We should know soon, but it's very, um, um, it, it's just, it's, it's not been done like that before and it's not allowed under, under uh, the current statutory scheme. And so we were just briefing the court on what Missouri law has been. And so again, but the defendants or the convicted, they have a remedy. They have a remedy now and they will always um, have a remedy through the, the various you know, post-conviction proceedings. Before we moved out of the city of St. Louis, I'd be remiss not to talk about uh the most famous Russ Carnahan donors turned uh, Make America Great activists, the McCloskeys. Um, why did you decide to intervene in that case? I think that your opponent said it was inappropriate for you to do so, but I think you probably have a different perspective on why you decided to get involved. It's a very dangerous precedent uh, in the sense that you would have a local prosecutor trying to put someone in jail for exercising a fundamental right. And the fact is the right of self-defense um, is embodied in the Second Amendment, has a, you know, a history prior to the Second Amendment, which in our amicus brief we note, um, it's a God-given right. And in Missouri, by the way, we have probably the most expansive castle doctrine in the country, which allows you to defend yourself, your family, your property, your home, and your property um, when you are threatened. And um, this was private property. This, there's, there's just actually no dispute about that. It's private property. And so uh, this is a political prosecution on, behalf, on, on the part of um, the circuit attorney. And we don't represent the McCloskeys. But as attorney general, um, you have um, um, the ability to intervene in these cases where the rights of all six million Missourians uh, might be affected. And I think it's a very dangerous precedent that people across the state or in the city of St. Louis could feel that they would potentially go to jail for exercising their fundamental right of self-defense. And so that's why we're seeking a dismissal of the case. I want to talk about two other lawsuits you're involved in. One was suing China, yep. which got a lot of attention, but has also gotten a lot of ridicule as a publicity stunt. I want you to explain to me why you think this is a meaningful 
use of the attorney general's office. Well, I think, and you look the the worldwide. I mean, we're we're wearing masks right now, right, we are. in this conference room. So the impact um, that um, the coronavirus has had as a worldwide global pandemic cannot be underestimated. The loss of life, human suffering, um, economic damage. And so when you really kind of peel back the onion here, you see the malfeasance on the part of the Chinese government um, in how this started. The first reported case in early December, um, and they didn't let the world know until January 21st. Um, you had whistleblowers silenced, you had people gone missing, and this was unleashed on the world. And I happen to believe that the Chinese government and the Communist Party of China should be held accountable for that. And so we took the step of bringing a lawsuit. And I would, I would say, and I think as legal scholars look at the, the complaint more thoroughly, they see the timeline is established. We're the first state to bring suit. But the, the timeline that's established of who knew what and when is very important for the public discourse. Secondly, under the, under the, um, the uh, Federal Sovereign Immunities Act, um, there are exceptions to that, that, that other countries can be sued. And one of those is when there is objective commercial activity. And so we allege that the operation of the virology lab, the hospital system, the hoarding of PPE, going from a net exporter to a net importer of PPE, um, all is objective commercial activity that takes them outside of that protection and they ought to be held accountable for it. So we're in the process of serving the parties. So as you might imagine, serving you know, communist China is not like serving, um, you know, the 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 uh, the, optometr the optometrist on Lindbergh. Um, it takes a little while, so that's where we're at right now. But we're very confident in the claim, and we're going to pursue it aggressively. At what point does the response of elected officials in the United States also become an issue, though? You know, yes, the virus is here because, as you have alleged, malfeasance in China, but also the response in the United States has played a role in where we are as well. I mean, obviously, all those things come into play. But the truth of the matter is, as this was unleashed on the world, uh, the Chinese government lied about it and they kept people in the dark. And I don't think that's very controversial. Um, we'll have to establish all that in court. But I'm confident that given that commercial activity exception that we can make a case, hold them accountable and uh, actually recover from Missourians. Now, I talked with you about this last year because your opponent's biggest criticism of you is the decision to keep Missouri in this lawsuit against the Affordable Care Act. And I want you to explain why Missouri is still in this lawsuit and what would be done if the entire law is thrown out and a lot of the stuff that even Republicans like, like protections for pre-existing conditions, keeping uh, parent, kids on parents' health plans till they're 26, go out the window. Uh, talk about that. Sure, I think we talked about this last time, but, but I have no problem um, addressing it. I mean, look, if you look at my record as a legislator, okay, when I had the opportunity to help craft laws, my record was to, to do everything I can to make healthcare more portable, affordable, um, and available for folks. And that includes, by the way, funding for individuals with special needs, with disabilities. Obviously, it's a very personal issue for me. And shepherded through as a, you know, second-year senator, a landmark autism insurance reform package that has helped tens of thousands of Missourians. And so I have a record of fighting for individuals with pre-existing conditions and with different health challenges. I think that ought to be part of the discourse. We ought to get something done. But as attorney general, I also have a, a very important role of upholding the Constitution. 
And the individual mandate is unconstitutional. If the Commerce Clause means that it can require people to buy things, the Commerce Clause is way more expansive than the founders ever intended and goes well beyond anything that's ever been established in case law. So that's the claim, right? The, the individual mandate is unconstitutional. But for anybody to conflate that position with the idea that I don't believe we ought to have protections for individuals with pre-existing conditions. It's just playing politics, it's a distraction, and it's disingenuous. So if successful, um, or even now, I think that Congress ought to get together in a bipartisan way, like we've done in the state of Missouri and other places, bipartisan way, and make sure that we have a law that's constitutional that protects individuals with pre-existing conditions. I, I, but I think that's the issue. Congress is a mess right now. Nothing's getting done. And I think that there's a lot of concern that what you want is not going to happen, and we'll be left with nothing. Like, how do yeah, I, I don't, I don't agree with that. I think that um, um, Congress clearly is dysfunctional. I'm not arguing that, but they can come together. I mean, they came together in the coronavirus package. I mean, they can come together. I think this is a big enough issue that they actually would, and they should. The polls put President Donald Trump up in the state so far, but not by as wide of a margin as he won in 2016, which was I think 18, 19, 20 points somewhere in that range. Do you think the narrower margin that exists right now, what impact do you think that'll have on down-ballot races, yours and your Republican colleagues? I don't know. <laughs> um, we'll find out in, what, three weeks from this recording, I suppose. But, um, but I'm still very confident. Missouri is a... Um, Missouri is a red state. It doesn't mean, by the way, as an elected official, you don't represent everyone, including the people who don't vote for you. I've always, you know, when I ran for the state Senate the very first time, I came from a district that was 50-50. I won by 10 points. Barack Obama won by eight. So, and when, in that old district, I would hold town halls in Webster Groves, which was an area that um, I overperformed, but was not the most Republican part of the district. Some I, Republicans would call it the people's <laughs> Right. Now. Right, but I thought that was important to, to hear from everyone, and that's how I've carried myself in public office. Um, but I do think Missouri is still a solidly red state. I think, you know, the, the president is going to win Missouri by a big number. We'll find out. I mean, the polls, by the way, four years ago had, you know, Trump leading by about that margin going, I remember because I was running statewide, by about that margin. So we'll see. Um, we'll see what it all looks like on Election Day, but I think he'll carry Missouri by a margin, and I think you know, other statewides be successful too. By the way, I did not mean to in, can, to, to uh, insinuate that Webster Groves is a communist enclave. It's a great community, but it is. I do want to ask this question. Your old Senate district is the most competitive seat yeah. in the entire state. And there's some feeling that if Andrew Koenig loses reelection, maybe it doesn't mean anything statewide, but it's a sign that Republicans in St. Louis County are at the lowest point if they can't keep like your former Senate district. What do you think is at stake there? I know that's not your main focus, but I'm sure you're paying attention well, to it. Well, look, I think it's, a, I, obviously I, I care about it. It's my old Senate district. And um, I think it's a really important race for a bunch of reasons. Uh, one is I think it's important to have somebody who is in the majority advocating for St. Louis County. If, um, if, all things stay as they are. Andrew Koenig, I think, is doing a great job as a state senator. But if, if um, you don't have a Republican who lives in St. Louis County in the majority party of a overwhelmingly, you know, Republican state with a, you know, super majority, um, I think that's a, that, that, is a, that um, is not a good thing for 
um, you know, the region that has 40% of the 45% of the state's GDP. So uh, I think it's important for a bunch of reasons. And then obviously, uh, I think Andrew Koenig's worldview is much preferable to uh, to Deb Lavender's. But I, it is, a, to your point, it's a very important race. I think that race in the, the Columbia seat, um, you know, Caleb Rowden are two of the most hotly contested yeah, for sure. I, I've actually asking people, I know this is a St. Louis podcast, but I have been asking people about that Caleb Rowden, Judy Baker race. I mean, you ran against Judy Baker. And you beat her pretty soundly, but she won Boone County. And I think that people had this assumption that Caleb Rowden was sa is safe. Barely, barely won Boone County. Fair enough. But uh, <laughs> because he has a lot more money and he's the Senate Majority Leader, but there is some feeling that Judy Baker may win if the margin of victory for Trump is less. What do you think is at stake in that contest? Well, he's the Majority Leader, right? I think he's making a similar argument. I don't get too, this is just what I've seen He's making a similar argument that, uh, you know, on behalf of mid-Missouri, it's really important to have Caleb Rowden um, as the, you know, advocating on behalf of mid-Missouri in a overwhelming Republican Senate. So uh, the stakes are pretty high in both those cases. I think they both still win. I think Representative uh, Rowden and Representative Koenig win, but, it, you know, they're going to be close. They're both senators, by the way. What did I say? Senators. Senators, senators of course. It's this senators. mask. The mask translated. I apologize. <laughs> As a former senator, you know. It forced his lips. For all of our stories, you can go to stlpublicradio.org, including the podcast with Mr. Schmidt's Democratic opponent, Rich Finn. By the way, of all the things I've said, I'll get the most grief for that, I'm most sure. Likely. Most likely, yeah. <laughs> I apologize. I'm on Twitter at, uh, at R. Lipman. Jason, where are you? Jay Rosenbaum. Uh, Mr. Schmidt, where can people find you in your campaign? At Eric underscore Schmidt, two T's, and then SchmidtforMissouri.com. Until next time, so long.